Hello everyone and welcome to the Motor City Hoops podcast, an entertaining fresh take on the three-time NBA champs, the Detroit Pistons. Hey Hoopheads, we appreciate you listening to this episode of Motor City Hoops. Be sure to check out these other NBA pods on the Hoopheads podcast network, including Cavaliers Central, Knuck If You Buck, 305 Culture, Spanning the Spurs, Daily Thunder, X's and O's NBA Breakdown, LA Hoops, The Wizards Hoops Analyst, At The Buzzer, and Lakers Fast Break, plus our coaching-focused podcasts, Thrive with Trevor Huffman, Beyond the Ball, the CoachMaze.com podcast, Players Court, Bleachers and Boards, The Green Light, and Courtside Culture. Oh, and don't forget to check out our flagship, the Hoopheads podcast, hosted by me, Mike Cleansing, and my co-host, Jason Sunkel, featuring the best minds in the game, from grassroots to the NBA. Hey, Hoopheads, we all hate ankle sprains, and they happen way too often. Ankle injuries are the number one sports-related injury. Arise is trying to change that. With the iFast, your athletes get preventative protection and full mobility. Athletes no longer need to wear bulky braces that limit performance and give mediocre protection. Anyone playing sports should be using these products. Keep your athletes in the game. Don't wait for them to get hurt to take action. Visit www.arise.com slash team pricing to learn more. That's A-R-Y-S-E dot com. I don't know if you're familiar with the story about how Vinnie Johnson became the microwave. I, I, I know, so, you know, this, this is all, I mean, I don't mean to like, this is all before I was even born. So, but I know Vinnie Johnson. I know the microwave. I know the nickname. I do not know where it came, you know, where it came okay, from. Okay, no, that's fine. That's fine. I was, I was just checking. Um, so game four of that series, the Pistons are down 2-1 and they're trailing double figures uh, going into the fourth quarter. And Vinny Johnson uh, has this out-of-body experience. He checked into the game. He hits something, I think, 10 of 11 or 11 out of 12 shots in the fourth. All mid-range, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) That cuts me, Keith. (laughs) No layups, no threes, all mid-range. Like, I, I... just in the fourth? I don't really, really remember the exact numbers. He, he either shot 10, or, 10 of 11 or 11 for 12. In the fourth? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, with a couple of foul shots. And he had like, they think, 22 or 23 points in the fourth quarter. And the Pistons storm back basically entirely on his offense. And they win and they tie the series. And after the game, Danny Ainge, uh, the Celtics guard, he said, uh, there's this guy on the 1985 Chicago Bears they call him a refrigerator absolutely uh, William sure Perry. William Perry yeah. yep so, so Danny Ainge uh, makes the comparison he said if, if that guy in Chicago uh, William Perry is the refrigerator uh, this guy Vinnie Johnson's the microwave oh. because you know he, yeah he heat up uh, he heated up uh, immediately wow and that, that was the genesis of the name that stuck with him that's awesome so yeah and then they, they Look, in the end, it didn't really. It was a footnote because uh, Larry Bird woke up the next game, hit forty three points, and then the Celtics closed the Pistons out in six. And that was really the theme for the Pistons from eighty four through eighty six. Um, even after drafting Joe Dumars, which was another great move by Trader Jack, eighteenth yep. pick in the draft. Yeah, Dallas could have picked him. Dallas had the sixteenth and seventeenth picks, by the way, 
they took they took I think two centers. <laughs> it was just a different era. Absolutely. But yeah. Um, J- uh, Joe Dumars uh, came into the league as a scoring point guard. Uh, people were kind of wondering what position he would play because he was such a great shooter, but he was he played point guard primarily. And uh, Trader Jack didn't really care. He said, um, "Yeah, th- this is going to be my uh, this is going to be my attempt to pair another." guard with Isaiah Thomas that would compliment him. And they absolutely did. They complimented each other perfectly. And uh, Joe Dumars, uh, he got his second start midway through the uh, 85-86 season, second start of his career, uh, national TV against the Los Angeles Lakers, the defending champs. Uh, I mean, no pressure there, right? right. On, on CBS. <laughs> he goes, and Joe Dumars goes out, he's on fire, he has 19 points and 11 assists, and the Pistons win the game. And from that point on, uh, Joe Dumars was firmly installed as the starting uh, two-guard next to Isaiah. Nice. Yeah. So the in that, that season ends the same way as the first two, as they go up against a superstar uh, forward. This one, this time it's Dominique Wilkins. And Dominique Wilkins hits the Pistons up for 50 uh, in one of the playoff games. Uh, the Hawks beat the Pistons three games to one. Uh, it was kind of an embarrassment in game four because the Pistons should have won. They were, they were getting baskets down the stretch, but they couldn't get stops. It was the theme of the eighties for them. They, I, I, they had, they, they had all this firepower, but when it came time to get that big stop at the end, they couldn't do it. Say, so it just seems and, like, yeah, it's just over and over, right? A recurring theme. And it was all from the same spot that that small forward position, uh, Bernard King, uh, Larry Bird, Bird, Dominic Wilkins. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Yep, three straight years, and at that point, um, I think everybody uh, had a mind to reset things. Isaiah Thomas, Chuck Daly, uh, Jack McCloskey, I think they all kind of had came to the same conclusion that, look, um, we, we can play this pretty up-tempo offensive style uh, during the season, but we don't have that MVP-type forward that's going to carry us or that's going to go up against – Bird or Dominique and score more points than they do. We, we need to, we need a different plan. And so that's really the genesis of the bad boys, uh, losing to the Hawks in that series. Uh, they went out, they traded Kelly Tripuka, uh, who irony, uh, of ironies, he was heartbroken. <laughs> uh, <to leave. laughs> yeah. Yeah. He was, it was sad, uh, like reading some of his comments, uh, because, you know, he was so cruel to the city uh, when he first got here, and then to uh, be kind of banished to Utah, uh, that, that really hurt his feelings. And they they traded him for Adrian Dantley, who was a disgruntled uh, megastar, but a disgruntled uh, forward from the Utah Jazz, who no one really wanted. But you know, the the Pistons were willing to take a chance on his talent because they were they felt they, like they were that close. Uh, Mainly because Adrian Dantley was the one guy in the league that the Celtics really had no answer for. Like, he was the Celtic killer of Celtic killers. Uh, he was too quick, uh, agile for, like, McHale or Parrish, and he was too physical for, for Larry Bird. They just had no defensive answer for him. Like, that was the big draw, in my opinion, was if we want to beat the Celtics, this is the guy that's going to get it done for so us. So when you talk about, like, perfect fit, it wasn't a perfect fit for the team. It was a perfect fit for the team they yeah. had to beat. It's, it, that's you know what that's the, as well as I could have put it. Um, they got him specifically to get past Boston. Really, not really. I don't want to say no other reason because I think that's selling him short. But 
he was that was the primary draw. And as soon as they got past Boston, I felt like his purpose for being there kind of ended because uh, he did have personality uh, clashes with Isaiah Thomas, famously as everybody knows. But I, I will say this: that that eighty-seven and eighty-eight seasons, um, you would not know that they had personality conflicts. Like both Isaiah and Adrian Dantley were so professional, so locked in uh, that they, they were so hell bent on having the success that everyone was telling them uh, they couldn't have their entire careers. Like to, to say, Adrian Dantley was was like a malcontent that didn't care about winning. I think is is very unfair. Uh, he just it was personality conflicts. They they were two alpha dogs. I think eventually they they both wanted, or they, they both saw it as their team. And the problem is one of them was right, and the other one was wrong. <laughs> so, so yeah, that was the first move. Um, getting Adrian Dantley, who they could throw the ball to when the game slowed down, and who could get to the line and help them set up their defense, so they wouldn't give up so many fast breaks. Um, and then the other moves that they did that that year in the draft was getting uh, Dennis Robin and John Sally. Yep. Uh, Sally in the first round, Robin in the second round. Uh, two guys, neither one of them very offensively gifted, but what could they both do? They could both play forward. They could both play excellent defense. They could both block shots. Uh, they drafted both of those guys essentially to guard uh, uh, Larry Bird and to a lesser extent, uh, Kevin McHale, to, to frustrate those those uh, small forwards and power forwards that had been killing them the, the the few years before. So, and that was '87. Uh, that that's when everything took off. They they played that same Hawks team uh, that, that had smoked them the year before, and they smoked them in reverse. Uh, they beat them four games to one. Uh, they shut down everything that they were doing offensively. It was just a completely different story than the year before. Uh, they had this wonderful, um, like the last, I think they were down something like double figures in the fourth quarter of game five in Atlanta. And they just, they put Rodman and Dominique Wilkins and he just frustrated the hell out of them. Like he kept forcing them. And, and this is the same guy that had touched the Pistons up for 50. Yeah. And all of a sudden, yeah, he was throwing up air balls. He was turning the ball over, uh, forcing the ball, uh, into double teams. And the Pistons came back and won that game. And that, that was, at that point, they're they're a legit contender. Like they hadn't beaten Boston yet, but they were. You could see them; they were coming. Um, so you had the, yeah, that that eighty six eighty seven season, which is the season I first started watching Pistons basketball at a very very young age. I didn't understand most of it. Um, they they really should have gone to that finals in eighty seven. Uh, they. You had the double whammy of I, I I know you remember this the Isaiah Thomas when he threw the ball away to Larry Bird yeah. when he had a one point lead yeah. with a few seconds left and get yep it's one it, it, it's uh, I hate to say this but it's like one of the first like memory you know like basketball like high highlights you know I guess um, that I remember you know yeah so and yeah that, there was that and. It was frustrating because the, the Pistons were just destroying the Celtics in the Silverdome by huge margins, and the Celtics were just squeaking by in the Garden. So you, you knew if they could just get one win in the Garden, like they would be going to the finals, and they could not do it. Yep. And they had they had that Game Five in their hands, and it, they let it slip away. And then they they killed Boston in, in Game Six, came back to Game Seven, and they were actually winning that game too. And what happened was. Um, 
Benny Johnson and uh, Adrian Dantley collided going for a loose ball at the very last play of the third quarter. And both of them got concussions. Oh, like shit. Adrian Dantley went to the, yep. Yeah, Benny actually came back in uh, for like a few minutes because we didn't treat concussions seriously. <laughs> yeah, back then, back but, then, yeah. Yeah, but Adrian Dantley went straight to the hospital. Wow. Like, it was like, yeah, like he was out, out. Um, like they had, they had to, to, to get, carry him off the floor. Um, so yeah, so without Vinny Johnson and Adrian Danley, um, the Celtics pull away, uh, in the fourth quarter, Joe Dumars, his second season in the league <laughs> playing in a game seven in Boston garden scores like 35, 37 points. You know, uh, and it didn't, real, didn't matter. Real quick, Keith, won. I feel like as underappreciated as Isaiah Thomas, not, not in Detroit, but as Isaiah Thomas is in general, I kind of like, I'm getting the vibe that Joe Dumars, like even by myself, admittedly, is underappreciated for how great of a player he was. Very much so. And I think the reason is that we saw how great Isaiah could be when you just gave him the ball and let him work. Like in the early, early, like he, he, he didn't put up numbers with the bad boys. He had to sacrifice that part of himself, which I have the utmost respect of him for. He, he essentially gave up his annual spot in the all NBA team. Uh, in order to win more games. But we never really saw that with Joe Dumars. Joe Dumars came into a team where he was sacrificing from day one. Yep. Okay. Like he, he was used to having the ball in his hands, and all of a sudden he was playing off the ball. And you, you saw a little bit of what he could do once the bad boys broke up, and he and it was just Joe Dumars and a bad team. But you know, no, you know, Joe Dumars is averaging, you know, 23, 24, 25 points a game on a team that's terrible. I mean, is anyone going to really notice? Not for, really. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So, but, but yeah, I think Joe Dumars is very deserving of his uh, spot in the Hall of Fame sure. as a player. Yep. And yeah, and uh, look, and here's the, here's the cool thing about the, the bad boy Pistons. They all sacrificed. Like the, the 89 Pistons, um, I, I believe they're the first team in NBA history to win a championship without a single player averaging 19 points or 10 rebounds. <laughs> and, and, and and this is a team where you had guys that were used to averaging 24, 25 a game with Aguirre uh, and Isaiah Thomas. And Joe Dumars showed that he was capable of doing that. And then you have guys in Lambeer and Dennis Rodman who – both of them uh, rebounding titles. Like Rodman had six or seven of those. Uh, Lambeer was a rebounding champion, and neither of them averaged ten rebounds because it was all it was just this this big collective effort to where we all sacrifice, we all share our plate, but in the end, we all eat. God, that's and I yeah, love that. It, You've thrown out some good stuff already. Like that may be one of my favorite. Like of of the thing, and you said some like there's been some awesome stuff, but like. I love that. Like, there's something just so special about the thought of every one of those guys sacrificing. Yeah, and none of not one piston. The, the Pistons won 63 games, 63 in 1989. Not one of them made the All NBA team. Any of them, or just first team? Uh, any of them? Really? I mean, wow. Yeah. Um, uh, Dennis Rodman um, really should have been Defensive Player of the Year. He wasn't. Uh, because he wasn't a starter at that point. I think that kind of got held against him. Uh, yeah. I, Isaiah Thomas, I believe, was their lone all-star. Uh, in fact, I'm sure of it. He was the only Piston that went to the all-star game that year. No one made the all-NBA team. Uh, it was just... At the, individually, uh, 
that team was given no respect, even though they were, you know, steamrolling the rest of the league. I think they won 30 out of 34 games at one point after the Mark Aguirre trade. Wow. So as we get, you know, I mean, we know the championships and all of that, Keith, what, and you've just laid out some of them. Are there any other stats or facts from that bad boys time that really impresses you? Maybe that's your favorite um, beyond some of the ones you've just, you've just laid out for us. Um, really, I, I think, and it's, look, this isn't very original, but it's the fact that they went through um, three of the greatest dynasties of the, of the modern era. They went through bird Celtics. Uh, they went through uh, Magic's Lakers. Uh, they went through uh, Michael Jordan. Well, they, they they held off Michael Jordan's Bulls for three years, uh, especially the, the last year in 90 when they were certainly a championship-caliber team. Uh, and Michael Jordan, uh, they were the only team in the league that was frustrating him, uh, that, that was keeping him from doing anything that he wanted. Uh, th- th- this is a team of, again, I don't want to say non-stars because Isaiah Thomas was certainly a superstar. Uh, but but this was very much a team that was taking on all of the other teams that were the traditional, uh, what you would consider champions, teams with top three, top four players uh, surrounded by a great supporting cast of other great players. And, you know, the, 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 the Pistons, uh, they eliminated, they were the only team that went through all three of those teams. And, and that's, to me, that's what sticks out is that, they were in the team in the middle uh, between they ended the Celtics run effectively. Uh, they ended the, I don't want to say they ended the Lakers run because they were back in the finals, but they certainly ended their run as, as being the best team in the league. And they kept the Bulls. They were the only team that were keep, that was clearly keeping the Bulls from becoming uh, their own dynasty. That That's awesome. That, that's a really good one because like you say, like just to, those, I mean, Celtics and Lakers, like you, all you have to do is say the names, obviously, and people talk about it. And then we know about Jordan's Bulls. And to be able to get two of them during that time period of taking down those giants of the Celtics and Lakers and holding Jordan off, you know, it was just a matter of time before Jordan was going to break through. But right. that's, you know, during that era to be able to do get two of them, like you say, in the fashion that they did it is so impressive. Yeah, and they, uh, again, they as, as unfortunate as the Pistons were um, in 87 and 88, I think uh, Fortune definitely smiled them in 89. Um, they, they they had eliminated Bird a year before, but in 89 they got to go through the Celtics without Larry Bird. Um, they, they got to go through a Bucks team that was missing a couple of starters, and then when they got to the finals, Magic got hurt in, in game two. So they, they were certainly fortunate, uh, but they were also dominant. They, they I think they went... Um, uh, 15 and two, uh, their first uh, championship run in '89 and in 1990. Uh, I think they only lost one. No, they lost two games other than the Bulls series. Uh, so they they weren't just winning these games uh, or winning these series by by close margins. Uh, other than that '90 Bulls series, uh, they were they smoked everybody. Got you. All right, Keith. So, um. I, I hate to do this, but just based on time, we're gonna skip ahead just a little bit. We're gonna we're gonna skip over that era between. And if it's okay with you, can we go ahead and fast forward to the going to work era and 
yeah, sure. transitioning to Joe Dumars as now an executive and how that roster came together. And, you know, and we'll get into some of the great facts. I've heard you, you know, on other podcasts, you know, name some of those facts. And I don't mean to do this to Pistons, you know, to you, those of you listening, I don't want to just gloss over Grant Hill and, and that era. But just for kind of the sake of time here, let's go ahead to go to 2000 and those going to work Pistons. And let's go through that story of how they were assembled. All right. So the, the Grant Hill era is winding down. It's, the, the Pistons have essentially uh, transitioned from Isaiah Thomas, and Isaiah Thomas re- retires, and immediately they pick up Grant Hill, and then they have that seven-year run. And then uh, Grant Hill is fed up with the incompetent way the, the team has been run during his time. And and he le- he does the unthinkable uh, because generally superstars, they, they've left in free agency, but it's still not that common. And so he, he, he bolts for Orlando to try and form a super team with Tim Duncan and and uh, Tracy McGrady. It doesn't work out uh, for Orlando. Tim Duncan backs out at the last second. But uh, what happens is Joe Dumars, who was uh, GM in waiting at this point, uh, he takes over a team that's essentially Jerry Stackhouse uh, and a well-capped-out roster that was built around a guy that's no longer there. So uh, he works out a sign-in trade uh, with one of Orlando's free agents, uh, well, two of them, uh, Ben Wallace and Chucky Atkins, uh, but specifically for Ben Wallace. Uh, he offers Ben Wallace, I think, a six-year mid-level deal, and Orlando isn't willing to match that, so they work out a sign-and-trade. And, yeah, Joe Dumars was obviously – he had played against Ben Wallace uh, sparingly. He'd seen him in action personally. He was obviously very impressed with what he saw because his first reaction was, okay, this is the guy I want to I build my – or anchor my franchise around. Yeah. No, maybe he didn't think that he was going to be a Hall of Famer. I, I think that's given him too much credit. But he, the, the work ethic, uh, the things, the intangibles that he brought to the game, that was that was Joe Dumar's biggest uh, first acquisition. And had that and been seen I, in Orlando, like the Ben Wallace? Obviously not what he was in Detroit, but ha, ha, in, in obviously not too much if they didn't want to match, but had they seen a little bit of that? I mean, and like you say, I know Joe Dumars had played against him, so he had a little different insight, but. Uh, I think they were too focused on getting, like they, they had Bo, Bo Outlaw. Sure, okay. Was a, I don't want to call Bo Outlaw similar to Ben Wallace because that's Ben Wallace was just so much better, but. At the time, I think I think they figured uh, we we've got Bo Outlaw. He's a little bit uh, more of a polished player. Uh, he's a little bit more of a win now guy, and we we think we're getting Tim Duncan anyway. Uh, we're we're okay. spending all of this money on Grant Hill and Tracy McGrady. Uh, do we really want to spend? You know, uh, do we do we really want to spend a six year deal on Ben Wallace, who is a undersized center that can't score sure like yeah of, co- of course orlando would have been happy to have ben wallace back but i i think the jody's offer kind of make kind of made the magic choke on it and so they they figured okay you know we'll just do a sign and trade like what's the worst that can happen right we're getting <laughs> we're, 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 we're getting the the dominant small forward in the league you're yep. getting our uh our part-time center yeah like what's the worst that, yeah <laughs> there's no way possible that this could backfire on us. Yeah. The, at, <laughs> uh, 
So, yeah, so that, and that was the, that first season with Ben Wallace, that was the last of the, of the Teal seasons. Yes. And, and they weren't very good. Yeah, they weren't very good. Jerry Stackhouse goes bananas though, right? He does, but it was a lot of it was fool's gold. And I, I love Jerry Stackhouse to death. Uh, if you're hearing this, Jerry, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, um, uh, yeah, he, it was one of those things where, and then they ran, I think they, I think the Pistons had the fastest, fastest or second fastest tempo in the league that year. And it, Jerry Stackhouse was really the only guy that was taking all these shots. And he, he was very, very inefficient. 24 um, shots a game, 40% from the field. Yeah. Um, he, he, he was a straight shooter. Like his, his three point shooting, he would make a bunch, uh, one game, next game, he, he couldn't hit the side of a barn. Uh, he, he did though, I want to, uh, make note of this. He did have that one magical game against the Bulls where he lit up Ron Artest for 57, <laughs> which is the franchise record that still stands today. And that that is really the one thing, to be honest, to take away from that entire uh, god-awful season. Uh, I, know, I know Jerry Stackhouse, that, that's a team scoring mark that will probably stand for a very long time. Uh, but uh, very much so, I think it was almost done in an effort to get his value up. Sure, sure. Uh, to be honest, um, because the very next season they they completely overhaul what they were doing. Yep. They they bring in a guy named Rick Carlisle. Yep. Uh, from Indiana. And, yeah. And and Rick, uh, great hire, one of the most valued assistants in the league at that point. And he comes in, and everyone thinks that the Pistons are like a three or four year. Remember, Sports Illustrated uh, picked them to finish, I think, fourteenth or thirteenth in the East that year. Uh, they were not seen as even being close to a playoff team. And Rick Carlisle comes in with Ben Wallace and Jerry Stackhouse and a whole bunch of role players, John Barry, Chucky Atkins. Uh, they traded for uh, Cliff Robinson, uh, who was a good player but was yep. 35 years old at the time. And uh, Michael Curry, who was a guy that, God love him, um, they, they called him the binary, binary man because all his stats at the end of the game were ones and zeros. <laughs> uh, yeah, they, they got a, a Dana Barros at the end of his career, a guy named Zelico Rabrasha, just a whole lot of, I don't want to say to call it a no-name team because you still had Terry Stackhouse and Ben Wallace, but it was very much a uh, greater than the sum of its parts team because that team went out, they won 50 games. They, they won 50 games. Uh, they were one of the their chemistry was one of the best in the league. Uh, they won their division. Uh, they got the number two seed in the East that year. And, you know, predictably, they they barely squeaked past the Raptors in the playoffs and the Celtics dismantled them because they didn't they didn't have enough guys that could create offense efficiently. Hold on. That, that, kind of, that squad got number two in the East? It was a bad East, to be fair. But okay. Yes. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh, Jason Kidd. Uh, that was his first year with New Jersey. Oh, say the, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember, okay, yep. The, this is the New Jersey Nets to the finals couple years. Yeah, the, the Pistons and the Nets, uh, both teams nowhere near the playoffs the year before. They come out of nowhere. And I don't want to say they dominate because there wasn't a whole lot of difference between them and ever, them and everybody else. But they, they, they were the two top teams in the East that season. And, yeah, the... Uh, the Pistons, uh, 
they they succeeded even though they they lost in the second round to Boston uh, in five games. Uh, they were so much better than anyone else could have predicted, and that team of all the Piston teams that didn't uh, that didn't win a championship, that that team holds a special place in my heart, and I think a, a lot of Piston fans that were around back then to that would remember that O two team. Uh, they called them the Alternators uh, because that that bench unit was so good. Uh, Rick Carlisle won Coach of the Year that year. Corliss Williamson won Six Man of the Year, and Ben Wallace won his first Defensive Player of the Year. Nice, Corliss and Williamson. Yep, yeah, and the irony is not one guy on that Pistons team even made the All Star game. Wow, gosh, uh, yeah, yeah. Ben Wallace not even an All Star at that point, uh, <laughs> at least in the NBA's view. Defensive Player of the Year, but not an All Star. Led the league in rebounds and blocks at the same time. Did not make the All Star game, if you can believe that. Insane. They, they, yeah, they, they gave his last spot uh, to uh, Sharif Abdul Rahim from the Atlanta Hawks. That was yeah. essentially the spot that those two were competing over. Got you. Um, no disrespect to Sharif, but come on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, and and I think this is uh, probably the the best part about Joe Dumars as a GM is he saw that success uh, that came out of nowhere. Most GMs would have been happy just letting, just coasting on that. Don't change too much. Uh, Joe Dumars changed just about everything. I was going to uh, say, he, this is fascinating because this next off season is this is off season where it all happened or not all, but a lot of it happens. Yeah. This was part two of his plan of his, uh, his master plan. Um, and it, it showed that Joe wasn't afraid to change. Um, uh, flashback to the, the draft the year before, the Pistons had a top 10 pick, uh, spend, it a guy, spend it on a guy named Rodney White, a small forward out of Charlotte. And because that's, they had, that was their gaping hole as the small forward spot since they, they were missing Grant Hill. And Rodney White uh, wasn't it at all. Uh, young guy, but it was just clear he wasn't going to work out. So the very next year, uh, outside the lottery with a 51 season, uh, Joe Dumars picks a... Uh, four-year player by the name of Tayshaun Prince. And I think they played one or two summer league games together. And by the time summer league was over, uh, Rodney White had been traded. <laughs> Good decision. Yeah, very uh, excellent decision. It was just clear that he, it, it was just obvious that Tayshaun Prince was a better player, at least, very least a better fit. So it was Joe Dumars who was wise to cut bait and get some value for him uh, while he could. Um, and then the, the part two of that was uh, free agency. Uh, he went Joe Dumars just like he did with uh, Ben Wallace. He went out, he targeted Chauncey Billups, and uh, Chauncey Billups uh, was – look, he was probably the top free agent point guard on the market, but it was a thin market, yeah. right? So like he, it's not like he was not valued. He absolutely was. He, he had been coming on. He, it looked like he had been reaching his potential in Minnesota. Minnesota, for whatever reason, did not want to bring him back at his price range uh, because they had Terrell Brandon, who was at the very end of his career. Okay, yep, yep. I can't explain that one. Um, so Joe Dumars' uh, classic move, is, I mean, he is on his doorstep, you know, 12-01 when free agency begins. Uh, here's the full mid level, uh, and I'm giving it, I'm going to give you the keys to the car. You're my starting point guard day one, and so you know that that was enough for Chauncey. He took it, and then he goes out. I think very late in the summer. I want to say it was uh, like September 11th of like 2002. 
somewhere along those lines, uh, he trades uh, Jerry Stackhouse. Uh, his, his everyone views his franchise player for to the Washington Wizards for Richard Hamilton, and you know it's not like Rip was a nobody. He was a you know a twenty point a game guy in Washington, but it was like you know this is this this skinny mid range shooting specialist that really doesn't do anything else, and you just traded away you know a guy that gets you twenty three twenty four game gets to the line gets assists you know, like you're your playmaker. And that was not viewed very positively. I was going to say, that time. couldn't have been gone over extremely well. No, no, it absolutely wasn't. Um, but it was it was viewed, even in the most positive sense, it was viewed as like a, a trade for the future because Rip was significantly younger. Yep. He, he made a little bit less money. Uh, but no, uh, in actuality, Rip was better right away. Um, <laughs> I think that had a little bit to do with Jerry not getting along with Michael Jordan in Washington, but but Rip was, as it turned out, he was the perfect fit for that team. I don't think we had really appreciated efficiency uh, back then as much as we do now, uh, because what Rip wasn't, he was not a volume uh, scorer like uh, Jerry Stackhouse, but he also didn't eat up possessions. Uh, he was a guy that that succeeded off the ball. He you wouldn't have to break your offense to get him going. Uh, he would run the other guy's uh, shooting guard to death. <laughs> I remember uh, watching him run up. screens, man. It was so much yeah. fun. It was. It really was. Um, he was not really a three-point shooter at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, that was kind of a knock when that was becoming more important. But it, it honestly didn't matter because uh, he was just a great fit. He made the Pistons' offense work so much better. Again, all respect to Jerry. I, I'm not here to bash Jerry Stackhouse, certainly. But Rip Hamilton was – I don't – think they come close to a championship uh, without Richard Hamilton uh, paired with uh, Chauncey Billups. Yeah, that, that so, backcourt, that combination. Uh, yep, so, and that's also Chauncey's very first season, uh, he took the reins. Uh, I want to say he led the entire league in clutch baskets that season. Uh, he had many, many, he had more game winners than I think I can even remember that year. Um, he, that's, he got the nickname Mr. Uh, Mr. Big Shot almost immediately. Um, the, the, the Pistons, once again, it, the irony is they didn't win anymore. They had the same identical 50-win record as they did the year before yeah. with all the changes. And they nearly lost in the first round at Tracy McGrady uh, and the Magic. And, and what would have been one of the more embarrassing 1-8 upsets ever, um, even though the Magic had Tracy, it was basically Tracy McGrady and a bunch of guys. Like Drew Gooden might have been second-best uh, teammate or Mike Miller. <laughs> Um, so, or excuse me, I don't, was Mike Miller even on the team at that point? No, he wasn't. Um, so yeah, it was like, uh, Drew Gooden, Gordon Gierichek, Daryl Armstrong, like a real, and like 45 year old Sean Kemp. I know he wasn't that old, but it, he had seemed like he was. Um, I think that might've been his last stop. Uh, anyway. This would so, have been what? Oh, two, right? Oh, two, oh, three. Uh, this is oh, oh, three. Oh, three. This is their second playoff run. And Rick Carlisle, out of really out of desperation, because Tayshawn Prince hadn't played the entire year. Real quick, Mike and, Miller was on that team, by the way. Okay, so you were right. Yep, no mistake. All right. Um. So yeah, Tayshawn Prince, and this I, I think more than anything would have frustrated this. This probably set the all-time record for Piston fans being frustrated. 
um, was watching Tayshaun Prince sit on the bench behind Michael Curry and not playing. Okay, th- yeah, not this is to- this is what I wanted to get to because I this I find this fascinating. So with with Rick Carlisle and Tayshaun. So yeah, so and this is the thing. It's it's really hard to blame Rick Carlisle to a point because you know his priority is to win games and he trusts the veteran. He doesn't really trust the rookie. Uh, even though Michael Curry, uh, you know, all of his numbers sucked, uh, he was still like a vital, like role player type cog. Uh, but the problem is with those guys is when you run up against talent in the playoffs, they get destroyed. And Curry very much got destroyed by Tracy McGrady. Tracy McGrady was beating the Pistons really by himself through four games. And in a really in a move of desperation, he starts putting in Tayshaun Prince. And I don't want to say Tayshaun Prince just came in and shut down McGrady and saved the day. It's not that simple. I think McGrady kind of wore himself down uh, throughout the series because they were really having him do so much. But it, it, it was absolutely a fact that uh, Tayshaun Prince uh, disrupted him with, with his length. And it, the, the Pistons make this spectacular 3-1 comeback. Uh, Chauncey Billups, I believe, scored... Uh, 40 in game six in Orlando to send it back to the palace for game seven and then hit the magic up for again for 37 uh, in, in that game seven. And the, the Pistons really, weren't really challenged uh, after the magic went up three, one, like they were all three games were pretty convincing wins five, six and seven. And that, that was really that. I think that's when you knew like this, okay, this is, could be our core. This, this could be something like the, this looks like a playoff team right here. And then they, they go to up against Philadelphia and uh, Eric Snow famously, um, <laughs> uh, one of the reasons we have the, uh, yeah, we have the shooters halo now is Eric Snow was kind of famous for moving under shooters because uh, he, he, he was strong, wasn't really that tall, wasn't really athletic. The only way to disrupt people, uh, him and a guy by the name of Bruce Bowen is they would move under you while you shot. Uh, like three point shooters, and that would try to get you thinking about your your landing space instead of your shot. And uh, he sprains effectively sprains Chauncey's ankle, I think, in game one. And from that point on, I, I know uh, it's probably Tayshawn Prince's greatest moment. Uh, he makes this incredible uh, appearance late in fourth quarter in overtime, where he's just scoring on every possession because they don't have Chauncey anymore, so they need to get their offense from somewhere. And for whatever reason, Tayshaun Prince just catches fire. And Philadelphia, Larry Brown, just refuses to double-team a rookie in a playoff game. <laughs> so they just they just kept posting him up against Aaron McKee, who was like half a foot shorter. Yep. And he just kept taking, taking him to the rim over and over. You remember this game? I, I, I just remember the names. Like I, I'm just kind of reminiscing yeah. through the names. And yes. Yeah, so – yeah. It, the sad thing is that Chauncey's sprained ankle probably cost them a legit trip to the finals. But the cool thing is it, it, it created opportunity for Tayshaun Prince to show what he could do. For Mehmet Okur, who was also a rookie, to show what he could do. Uh, for Rip Hamilton, uh, th- there was just so many guys that stepped up at, in that Philadelphia series. And then Chauncey comes back in game six, uh, limping around pretty badly. And he lights it up in the fourth quarter in overtime to put the Sixers away and get the Pistons to the conference finals. And that was kind of his last hurrah because in the New Jersey series, he was kind of done. Uh, Jason Kidd ran circles around him. 
but that was that that old three was was pretty special and it 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 could have been more special uh at halftime and and this is one that no one's going to want to hear but i'm going to say it anyway at halftime of the uh of game three of the conference finals against new jersey it was either game three or game four i want to say it was game three um they they hold the nba lottery and uh the, the Pistons have Memphis's pick. Uh-huh. I think they were slated. They were slated sixth. So no one's really look. That's the one time in my life I've never watched the NBA lottery uh, <laughs> since I've been watching. One time in my life because it was found money. I'm like, okay, the you know the Pistons are getting killed in this game. I, I don't, you know, I'm just gonna shut it off and go do something else. I don't want to put myself through this. Just let me know where we pick. And I, I turned back on the TV in the second half, and I see the, Pist- the, the Pistons uh, <laughs> wound up getting the number two overall pick. Yep. And, yeah, and you're thinking, okay, this is this is meant to be. We're going to take this number two pick, and we're going to win the championship with it next year. Yep. And we did win a championship, just certainly not with the number two pick. <laughs> I mean, I just remember thinking, like, you have with all these guys, the, this team, and then you get the number two pick, and – yeah. What is a draft that has some pretty talented players? So, um, yeah. it, it just yeah. seemed insane that a team was able to, you know, acquire that pick with that much talent already on the roster. Yeah. And the thing is, um, Darko Milicic sadly was considered one of those talented players. I think for lack of, we certainly didn't have scouting back then like we did today because everyone was, Keep keep in mind, uh, Dirk Nowitzki and Pau Gasol were kind of. I don't want to say they came out of nowhere. They were successful players before in Europe, but I you I think you had this kind of this obsession yep. in the NBA with finding the next power, the next Dirk, yep. the next yep. European star. And Darko certainly uh, his measurables, uh, big guy, uh, certainly strong for his age at, at eighteen. He was younger than. Uh, I can't remember if he was younger than LeBron or not, but they were just about the same age. They were both 18. And uh, this this multi-skilled 7-1 big man with an inside-outside game and court vision. And it was – look, I I think – and this is self-serving, but I believe to this day that it didn't matter who got that number two pick. They were probably going to pick Darko. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. And – yeah, obviously we don't need to go into the rest because as I don't need to tell anybody that it didn't work out. Yeah. So yeah, so oh oh three oh four uh, starts off, and we didn't know we didn't know Darko was a bust yet. So the 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 hype train is still going. Um, but it's more of like we drafted an eighteen year old center, maybe two or three years down the road, we're, we're raising the trophy. But uh, it, it comes to a point where in the trade deadline, uh, everything. And Joe Dumars has done a good job of picking up assets. Um, he has his own first-round pick. Uh, he also has a first-round pick from the Rodney uh, White trade from the, the Denver Nuggets. And it was either the Nuggets or the Bucks. Uh, I forget which team that owed him a first-round pick, but he had one of those picks as well. And he had uh, some expiring contracts. And everybody else, all the other contenders, had already spent their assets. So by the trade deadline, Joe Dumars is kind of sitting there. His patience has paid off. And on the market, uh, all of a sudden, Rasheed Wallace gets traded to Atlanta. And that, that just – because and you know Atlanta's terrible. They, they have no reason to hold on to Rasheed Wallace, who's an expiring contract. And no one else uh, has multiple first-round picks to trade other than Joe Dumars. 
So, and everybody kills the Hawks for this uh, in the Celtics because the Celtics facilitated the deal uh, with some cap room and expirings. But the bottom line is no one else, no other GM had the, was in position to make that deal. Joe Dumars was. Uh, he said uh, the pick that was owed to him to Atlanta, which irony uh, wound up being Josh Smith. <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, things come things come full, full circle. circle. Yep. Um, yeah, and he sent his pick to Boston, which I believe came, uh, wound up becoming Tony Allen. And mm-hmm. it was a whole lot of uh, role players that got switched around. I think uh, I know Chucky Atkins got shipped out. Uh, uh, Bob Sura, Izelko Rabasha, a bunch of guys that weren't going to affect things long term. And in return, the Pistons got uh, Rasheed Wallace on what was essentially a a three or four month rental because he was a free agent coming up and a guy by the name of Mike James, who not many people had heard of at that point. And it wound up being, I mean, think about it. He traded two first round picks for a guy that could leave in three months. Yeah. That's like, this was not like a no risk deal. I say it better work, right? Like it better pay off in the way Uh, it's easy to look at it back now. But I think, yeah, I think everybody was on board with the risk. I'm just saying there was risk. Yeah. Um, so, and you know, j- just like they did with with Mark Aguirre, the Pistons lost uh, their first game with him. Uh, I think they lost the first two games with him. And but once he got adjusted, uh, it was they were it was lights out. The, the Pistons were not only the best team; they were the best team by a wide margin. Uh, they went from being like one of the five or six best teams to being the best team, and it wasn't close. Uh, their margins of victory were pretty staggering. Uh, they like it was a small sample size because it's only like a third of the season or a quarter of the season, but it was like comparable to like what the '96 Bulls were doing. Uh, like it, they were that dominant. I I think one of the greatest what ifs uh, is what could that team have done that '04 team for a full 82 games because I think they could have competed for 70 wins. That's a really good uh, point. I've never thought about that. Like, who knows what kind yeah. of if they could have broke, you know, if they trade, make that, and how you laid it out, it probably w- never would have worked out this way. But if somehow they get Rashid right. in the off season, and then go into the season with this squad, that's a that's a really good point. I had never thought of that. That you know what that season as a whole, regular season as a whole, could have looked like in terms of stats. I guess. Yeah, I mean, look in hindsight, there's probably no way Portland would have entertained trading Rasheed Wallace. For sure. Prior to that year. Yeah. Um, they were still a perennial playoff team. And in 03, 04, they kind of fell off the map. And that, that's what kind of led them to uh, entertain just dealing him for whatever they could get. So I don't think it was re- – look, I don't think it was realistic to think that they could have gotten him earlier. I just think it would have been neat because that 04 team was very unique. That was by far the best collection of players that they had. Uh, famously, they they couldn't because of the rules at the time. They they were they were not able to match uh, offers above a certain point for Mehmet Okur and keep Rasheed Wallace at the same time. So they had to pick between one of the two after the season. There was no way for them to keep both. Huh. Um, like Mike James got a huge offer from Toronto. Uh, so, like they still were a very good team, but they didn't have the the depth of that 0-4 team was staggering. So uh, the depth and also that was Rasheed Wallace was in the, some of the best shape of his life uh, that I don't think he was in again 
even though he was very good. Like in 04, he was out like pressing, like he was pressing around half court. Like he was, he was everywhere. Like he was the perfect fit for Larry Brown's like attacking defense. So I've heard you talk about this with the defense, like what they were doing. So I, I do, you know, Keith, we've been about an hour and a half here and I, I'm, I'm fascinated and I, I definitely want to bring you back on because I, I know we've had to skip over some stuff and obviously we're, if we're going to cut it off here, we're missing some years between the end of going to work and where we're at now. But before we do finish, can you talk about some of the stuff like the stats and the insights that I've heard you talk about on other podcasts? with this going to work team that won that pressure defense that you just alluded to. Yeah. Uh, so Larry Brown, who's, and I, I kind of skipped over this, uh, after Oh three, uh, Joe Dumars makes probably his ballsiest move. Even though <laughs> I think, I, I think where Carlisle was kind of on the outs with, uh, upper management, uh, not just Bill Davidson, but with, all of the big wigs of the piss, the people that the very few people above Joe Dumars, I think, where Carlisle kind of, uh, for lack of uh, better terminology, I think he kind of pissed them all off uh, because <laughs> he believed that as long as he won, he was kind of untouchable. Yeah. And he was wrong. Uh, and I think that's a lesson he's kind of learned uh, later on in his career. But, um, yeah, Joe Dumars is kind of, I think his hand was kind of forced, but in any case, uh, he had Larry Brown, uh, ironically, the team that they had just beaten, Coach of the six. I was going to say, that's, as you were telling that story, as like, you know, you talked about Larry Brown not willing to go double a rookie, Tayshawn Prince. I'm like, and then little do he, does he know he's going to be coaching him the next year? I thought that was interesting. Yeah. So, and, and Larry Brown, a uh, polar opposite type um, personality from Rick Carlisle. Rick Carlisle was very much about efficiency and uh, just getting you to take low efficiency shots. Uh, not very much of him on the risk side. Uh, Larry Brown was all on the risk side when it came to defense. He was very much a guy that liked to attack you, liked to be physical, liked to, uh, beat you up, uh, so to say. And once they got Rasheed Wallace, this was like Larry Brown's dream team. Like this was the perfect team that, that he could have ever asked for. A team of hard workers, a team of, uh, physical defenders, a uh, long wingspan, uh, a lot of depth and, he just had a field day with it. Uh, he, he diagrammed this full court press, uh, or this trap that they would go to almost without warning. And he, he usually waited till the, uh, the reserves came in. Uh, Mike James, who I already mentioned, who was a great, uh, really good, uh, ball hawk and also a guy named Lindsey Hunter. Yep. Uh, who was, yep, one of the greatest ball hawks the Pistons have ever had. And they used to call them the pit bulls where they would give Chauncey and, uh, rip a rest, uh, for a little bit and then he would send those those other guards in and then they would just immediately go to almost like a high school style like trapping defense and it, in the nba and it worked like <laughs> it, it, it worked to a crazy crazy amount um the the average score uh again i want to give this caveat it's only maybe 20 some games all right so this is not like over a full season uh sample but this is Every single game with Rasheed Wallace starting, uh, they their record I believe was seventeen and four, and even that was fluky because their their two of their four or three of their four losses were like one possession games, uh, and their average uh, point differential even with the four losses was like well over thirteen points a game. Uh, they 
held, uh, I want to say they held five teams uh, straight in a row, five teams under 70 points. That, that's the stat, Keith. That, that's unbelievable. That is a record that will not be broken, uh, barring some major rule changes. <laughs> Those rule changes are something we're going to talk about when I have you back on to do yeah. some NBA history. I do want to get into that. I know we don't have time today, but yeah, you're, that, that, that will never get broken. Yeah, yeah. Some of the some of the stats, as I recall, uh, their their average points uh, per game allowed, I think, was less than less than eighty, like seventy seven something. Uh, they in that stretch, they held eight teams, eight teams under seventy in that small, I think, twenty one or twenty two game stretch with Rasheed Wallace starting. Wow. Uh, yeah, uh, one team, one team that they played that entire season with Rasheed Wallace in the lineup uh, broke ninety. Wow. One, and, 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 and they barely, it was Utah and they barely broke 90 and nobody broke a hundred. Oh, this is the story. Uh, we probably don't have time to tell it, Keith, but the, the, this is the story where they go crazy, right? Because they score 90. Or is yeah, that, or is that breaking seven? The team that broke the, uh, yeah, the, the day of the streak ended when, um, yeah. And this is where they play. I'll, I'll, I'll abridge it a little bit. All right, so the, the, the Pistons at this point have shattered. They've more than doubled the NBA record for holding team consecutive games, holding teams under 70. And it, it, they, their next game is against New Jersey, and I'm pretty sure it was a, na- a national TV game. And New Jersey, they're the two-time defending conference champions. <laughs> this, is, this is not a nobody team. Like, this team is supposed to have some pride. And the Pistons just stomp the life out of them. They're they're winning by twenty some points in New Jersey, uh, with time running out. And I think the score was eighty nine to sixty nine. I think it was with like thirty or twenty seconds left, something. And the Pistons have the ball, and you would think they would just let the clock run out. No, uh, <laughs> New Jersey fouls. New Jersey fouls. So they can get the ball back, and then they call timeout so they can run one last play to try to break the Pistons' streak of scoring of holding a team under seventy. And the, the shot misses, but they get a tip in by the uh, from a guy by the name of Aaron Williams at the buzzer. And Aaron Williams, if you just saw the play, you'd swear he won the game. <laughs> or, or even like, but like it, it is one of the most surreal things uh, that I've ever seen in all my time watching basketball is to see. Uh, not only a player celebrate uh, losing a game by 18 points at home, but celebrating the fact that you broke 70 points in an NBA game. <laughs> like oh. the, the New Jersey Nets, who had who had been to the finals two years in a row, were were so overwhelmed by this Pistons team that they were celebrating we broke 70 points. And I think the biggest, you know, emphasis is you're talking about, like you said, back to back Eastern Conference champions. It's not like just some, you know, team that hadn't been in the playoffs for ten years and celebrate. You know, but I mean, this is a team. This is this is a team that had just swept the Pistons out of the playoffs the year before. Yeah, that and and now they're they're yeah. And flash forward a year later, the Pistons are so much better, at least in this game, uh, that they're. Celebrate their, their moral victory is we lost a game eighty nine to seventy one. <laughs> that whenever I heard that story, I believe you were on Locked On Pistons with Koo Whenever you told that story, and I was just, I think I, I, think I tweeted at you a meet, you know, right after, and you you gave us some, some of those stats as well. 
And, um, you know, Keith, I, I think we're gonna have to end it there, man. I, I'm, I, I'm actually, I'm sorry for, for you, for myself that we couldn't get into even more of this, but man, I had a blast. I, I, again, I was on the edge of my seat the whole time, listening, smiling, laughing, and I appreciate you going through this stuff. Um, so thank you very much. Yeah. The, the Pistons, uh, again, they're, believe it or not, the Pistons are the second oldest um, professional basketball team still in existence. Wow. Uh, there, there is a great deal of history. Yeah. The, the, the Kings, believe it or not, uh, are almost 100 years old, but that's a different story. Um, but the, the, there's so much uh, about the Pistons historically uh, that makes them unique, that makes them interesting. And I was just glad to share what I could share today. I mean, it's, it, I think there's so much fun stuff that isn't really talked about or discussed that I think is still interesting even today. No, and that's that's what this went exactly how I wanted it to, Keith. Like, because I, I knew there, I know people are gonna know, and I hope people come and listen because they're gonna know. Yeah, they all know the going to work that you know Chauncey was signed and Tayshawn was drafted, but like all the other little insights and the the ironies that you brought up, I that's what I've been fascinated listening to you on other podcasts, listening to you in the uh, what is it now Spotify green rooms, the trivia questions like. This was everything I was hoping it would be, and I appreciate it so much. Because you're right. These are stories that need to be told and heard. Yep. Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, thank you for giving me the time today. And so uh, just real quick, Keith, let the listeners know where they can find you, Twitter, any work you're doing, any of that type of stuff. Uh, my, my Twitter account is uh, Keith Black Trudeau at charlatan28. That's C-H-A-R-L-O-T-T-E-A-N uh, 28. Uh, I post to his, well, not lately because we're in the off season, but I post, uh, every day I post a historical video during the season of something that happened on this day so many years ago in Pistons history. Uh, I'm also, you can also find me in the uh, Spotify green room, uh, at least, uh, every Tuesday uh, or excuse me, every uh, Monday, occasionally Mondays and Thursdays at 2 PM, uh, which I do with Duncan Smith at 3 PM. Uh, traditionally, we go to a trivia segment where I try to tell a little uh, story about NBA history with some trivia questions. It's all in fun. Yes, that's uh, I, I jump in there as often as I can, and I never get any of the trivia rights, but I enjoy it nonetheless. Uh, hearing the answers and coming up with the you know the names and being able to reminisce once you hear those names. So definitely follow Keith on Twitter. I will be tagging him and all this, so you'll be able to to catch it that way. If you're not already following him and then check out those, those Spotify green rooms with Duncan Smith, Keith, and, and all sorts of Pistons fans. Again, Keith, thanks you so much for joining. Oh, oh you're welcome. I, this was actually, the, uh, this, this time really felt like it flew by. Uh, this was a whole lot of fun. Yeah, absolutely. Again, follow us, Motor City Hoops on Facebook, Motor City Hoops on Twitter, uh, you know, I, I just, I look for engaging basketball, Detroit Piston, NBA conversations and content. So give us a follow, um, comment, send me a DM, make sure you comment, rate, subscribe to the podcast, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you for listening to the Motor City Hoops podcast. Catch you on the next one.